Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're tuning into the Trail Less Traveled, and right now we are recording in Conquistador's Isle in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and we have attached two 14-foot paddle rafts together via carabiners. Guests on the outside of those paddle rafts are paddling us forward into the current, and I'm here on the river with Glenn Goodrich. Glenn Goodrich is a living legend. He has rafted over 445 rivers of the world, and after this trip, we have been working two back-to-back expeditions down here. Yet after this trip, he is going to be running 11 rivers in Colorado. Last week, we interviewed Glenn in regards to his life stories, some of his favorite tales from the rivers all over the world that he's guided on. Now, I hope to hand the microphone over to Glenn without dropping it into the river and ask him about one of his heroes here in the Grand Canyon, Flavel, George Flavel. But before we do that, just in case, Glenn, someone wasn't listening to last week's show, could you give us just a little bit of an intro on who you are? Yes, I'm Glenn Goodrich, and I've guided uh, 41 years and work on the Grand Canyon here. Uh, Since 2003, I've worked here. I did my first trip in 1980, and always a pleasure working with Mandela, which we've worked together for four or five years now, so happy to be here. But... uh, As Mandela says, my hero is George Flavel, so a little bit of human history for you. The first person to ever go down the river, and it's kind of an unofficial one, was a gentleman named James White in 1867. Now, most of you have heard of John Wesley Powell in 1869, but James White was a horse thief, and James was with two other men, and they stole horses from Indians up in Utah. And they were fleeing. The Indians saw them do it. And so they were fleeing from the Indians. And they went off in the woods. One of them was killed by the Indians. The two kind of hid in the woods near the Green River and decided, that you know, fearful that they were going to get caught and killed. So they put together a makeshift raft, kind of Huck Finn style. And they... uh, ended up floating down the Green River. One of them drowned right away, and the other one, James White, continued down the river. The next time he was seen was floating past Needles, California, practically unconscious, dehydrated, starving, and they brought him over to shore and revived him, and he proceeded to talk about going through this massive canyon for several weeks. And so the story kind of works, that his timing and where he was and where he ended up, but some people don't believe him. But we call that the first unofficial run of the Grand Canyon, whether you believe him or not. Then there was John Wesley Powell, and he did it because he was a geologist for the U.S. government, and he was doing a geological survey, but the first one to explore the uh, Grand Canyon in 1869. I won't go into a lot of detail there, but he was a legend, of course, and first one officially to do the Grand Canyon in 1869. The next one was 1889. A guy named Robert Brewster Stanton went down the river, and he was hired by a railroad company to do the uh, Grand Canyon to see if there was feasibility to do the railroad. He ended up asking for boats and life jackets from their, his boss, Frank Brown, who was the president of the railroad. Well, Frank Brown said, no, we can't afford oak boats. We're going to give you cherry boats. Frank Brown said, no life jackets. And that sounds very blatant to be out here with no life jackets. But they, and it was to some extent that they also many, many rapids, so they weren't expecting to run big stuff that they might need life jackets. So anyway, the expedition went down on the Grand... They were on mile 12 of the Grand Canyon. They had started up in Wyoming, and Frank Brown, the president that refused the life jackets and refused the, the oak boats, drowned at mile 12. So Frank Brown then, on Robert Stanton's trip, 
more men drowned Peter Hansborough and Henry Richards in mile 25. So Stan now has an unsuccessful trip. Three people have drowned, and he said enough is enough. He left the canyon at, at mile 31 at a place called South Canyon and went back to the railroad company and asked to do it again, but sure to it right with boots and life jackets. And he proceeded to uh, do a successful trip down the river in uh, completed it in 1890. So Brown was the second official one. Remember, the first one was a horse thief. Second one was a geological survey. The third one is a, doing it for railroad. So along comes my hero, George Flavel. This is 1896, six years later after Stanton completed his journey. Remember, I mentioned that they were planning to portage. John Wesley Powell portaged about 70 rapids. Portaging meaning walking your boats around, dragging the boats over rocks, taking them, maybe lining them along the side. But they portaged about 70 of them. Uh, Robert Stanton portaged over 50 rapids. Now, George Flavel reads about Stanton, reads about John Wesley Powell, and says, hey, let's do this. This looks like fun. And so he found a sidekick. His name was Ramon Montez. He and Ramon Montez, he built a boat, and he headed down the Green River from from Green River, Wyoming, where these early expeditions started, and headed down to do the Grand Canyon. He ended up portaging one rapid called Disaster Falls up on the Green River. He ended up portaging one after the in Cataract Canyon called the Big Drops. Those were only two. Powell and, and Stan had probably portaged 15 rapids by then, and he only portaged two. Well, he got into the Grand Canyon, and the uh, second rapid in the Grand Canyon is called Soap Creek. Soap is a uh, Grand Canyon 6. If you guys have, have the maps or have been with me, the ratings, there's uh, we ran 9s and 10, and 9s and 8s the other day, and 9 yesterday. Well, Soap isn't that big of a rapid, but he he had read stories about in Powell's journey how it looked terrible and it was going to portage and stand as well so he decided to portage well he dragged his boat over those rocks he and Ramon Montez just two people these heavy wooden boats and when he was done portaging that one he said this is ridiculous it's way more fun to paddle through the rapids than portage and so George Flavel proceeded to run every rapid in the Grand Canyon and so he was the the first to run many rapids Lava Falls is our big kahuna on day five for you half trippers and day 10 for the full trippers he ran Lava Falls and an expedition after expedition after him uh, still portaged Lava Falls was not run until 1938 by a guy named Buzz Holmstrom so everybody was still portaging those and he ran them he ran all of them and so he's kind of my hero because he you know it was amazing that he ran all these rapids and and a little funny side note there's a rapid called Hans which was on the upper and when he got to Hans he decided it's kind of a rocky class nine rapid and he decided well I better be safe here and portage uh, this one and he was getting ready to portage John Hans was known to be a storyteller and had a tourism operation and here come a bunch of horseback riders uh, part of John Hans's company's tourism trips and he, he saw them there on the shore just as he's getting ready to portage he went over and talked to him and there are a couple presidents from universities in Arizona some pretty big high up people he thought to himself he had a little bit of an ego and he thought I'm not going to portage in front of these guys that won't look good I better run it so he ran it and broke an oar but he fixed that and, and he ended up running every rapid on the Grand Canyon that's the, the thing. He was the first to do it for fun is why I, another reason I like him. But I also have a passion for him because he was just, he didn't brag about it. He was quiet. He just did the trip and went on his merry way and lived the rest of his life. And he never bragged about it. So while all these expeditions have things named after him, and um, which, you know, rightfully so for many of them, Flavel never had anything, in fact, is so, so unknown that I did a trip with a group few years ago and there two people in that group had over 100 trips on the river everybody had like 40 50 trips lots of trips and i stopped at one point and i said to the crew said do you know who george flavel is and not one of them knew who george flavel was here's people that have been running the grand canyon didn't even know who he was so i'm kind of trying to bring him back he's he's my man he's uh he was just ran all those rapids and he was incredible and another good example is 1909 
13 years after Flavel, a gentleman named Julius Stone was an Ohio manufacturer with had a lot of money. So he hired Nathaniel Galloway, who actually uh, did the river um, about six months after Flavel. He was number four. And he hired Galloway and another guy, Seymour du, uh, Dubendorf, to take him and a friend, Raymond Cogswell, down the river. So the four of them went down the river. Julius Stone, after his, because he's, you know, has lots of money, he marketed his trip and told the world that he was the first one to do it for sport. And that's totally wrong because Flavel did it for fun. And down here, you'll see perfect timing because today you will see Galloway Canyon. You will see Stone Creek. You will see Dubendorf Rapid, our biggest rapid of the day today for Seymour Dubendorf. And there's a Cogswell Bluff. All four of them got things named after them, even just the passengers. And yet Flavel has nothing for, named after him. So so that's why he's, he's my man. He's my hero. And uh, I'm kind of on a mission to get something named for him and... and uh, there's a really fun rapid that still is only a number. It's called it's mile 217 rapid, but in my book is not 217. It's I call it Flavel rapid. So well, my my plan is to get lots of people calling it Flavel. Uh, it's a major process to go through to get it officially named, but I figured rather than starting that process now, let's get everybody talking about it, get it named Flavel that way. So anyway, that's a little bit of human history for the first four people, three official down the river. Another thing about Galloway, when John Wesley Powell went down, when these guys went down, they were rowing backwards, so it was very hard to see because it was a, these boats weren't made for whitewater and there's Galloway kind of came up with a new system of rowing facing forward and uh, everybody says Galloway was the first one to do that on the Grand Canyon but Flavel had figured that out he might have learned from Galloway possibly but everybody gives Galloway credit for being the first one to to row boats facing downstream and yet Flavel did it and it's documented and nobody questions Flavel as as far as he's he is officially the third person down the river it's documented the he did a journal the journal is entirely accurate when you read about the different rapids and so nobody questions that he actually did it he just never publicized it so anyway that's my man George Flavel and there's a little human history if you're just tuning in, you are on the trail less traveled, and that is the voice of Glenn Goodrich. Glenn has run over 445 rivers of the world, and he has been guiding since 1977. We are floating down the river. This is my second expedition this year with Glenn. I've had the honor of working with him for four or five years now. We have doing back-to-backs, so I guess this is, what is this, what day is this for us on the river, Glenn? For us on the river, so then another 13, so day 21. 21 days on the river with Glenn Goodrich. I am grateful and honored to be your friend. Thank you. Glenn, for those listening, this is a radio show. We have our wonderful guests here who are helping us stay in the current, and they can see what we're looking at. But I was wondering if you could describe, maybe paint the picture for the listener as to what you see when you look downstream, down Conquistador's Isle in the Grand Canyon. Conquistador Isle is a pretty special place because it's just everything's great scenery, but we've been in this narrow canyon through the... uh, granite gorge and earth folds so now we're at we're up into a higher layer the river doesn't go up the earth just goes up so but with it this is a more open place so you really can see the layers the, the grand canyon is known known for its layers and right here is a spectacular corridor we're in what's called a petite petite sandstone maybe my favorite layer like a pancake layer just just all these little layers on top of each other and then uh, as you go up you see all the different layers and you really get a good full view of the canyon uh, because it's fairly wide right here. I love the narrow parts too, but this is a good wide place where you really get a good perspective of the entire canyon. and It's uh, spectacular wherever you are. Glenn, why do you guide? I guide because, well, I love whitewater. This job is a passion to me. But uh, while I love whitewater, my number one passion is these folks. What gives me greater gratitude than a great run in a rapid is the people and I, I that's the favorite part of my job is showing people this experience and that's what I love about what I do that's the number one passion the whitewater is really fun there are guides that do get into this business because there might be kayakers and they love whitewater and they're just doing it for the whitewater and and I love whitewater but I always want to always love guiding I never get burnout, tired of 
taking people down the river, showing people. Love what I do, and, and it's for the people because that's, that's what's most special to me, to hear people say, I had high expectations, but this exceeded my expectation. That makes my trip, things like that. Yeah. So I might ask if the folks who are on the outside of this double 14-foot raft could paddle forward a little bit and maybe make a cheer for Glenn. Let's hear it for Glenn, everybody. Awesome. So, Glenn, it's time for a song. And I was wondering if you have a song that you have in mind. We just hiked Blacktail Canyon. And you, you wanted everybody to join in? Well, actually, there's a participation part here. So what I need... Is this is a song I do, especially on dailies when people are carrying their paddles on a bus. But I've done it down here. We can do it on the we can do it on the raft. So what I need, I need everybody on the right side to, to do this. Then the left side does this. I mean, just a sound. So it's all right. Can you follow me? Right side. Right side. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gotta be a big man someday, you got mud on your face, big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, everybody, we will, we will rock you, we will, we will rock you, alright, good job everybody. Here on the trail less traveled, recorded for you today in the heart of Grand Canyon, floating down the Colorado River. And we are approaching a horizon line. It's our first rapid of the day. What's this rapid called? Mile 122 Rapid. Awesome. And you are on the trail less traveled, sponsored by Skin Chic, the Bitter at Brewing Company, the Trailhead, the Clark Fork Coalition, Parkside Credit Union, and Big Sky Bikes on the trail 1033. The Trail Less Travelled podcast is sponsored by Karuna Clothing, sewn with love and laughter. Karuna Clothing is handcrafted from natural fabrics which soften as they age. They design clothing lines to fit the moods of places which have inspired them. Design simply and using the best fabrics. Karuna Clothing creates their own unique colours. Strong, well sewn, small batch, unique product lines which are simply beautiful handmade in missoula montana all of karuna clothing is sewn and dyed in the u.s and all workers are paid good living wages www.karunaclothing.com that's k-a-r-u-n-a clothing.com Good afternoon. By the time you hear this, it's going to be evening. You'll probably be nestled in somewhere around the world, maybe Missoula, Montana, but we are right now floating down the Colorado River in Grand Canyon National Park. We are just around mile two, 13 and a half, 214, I'd say by now. Uh, last night we camped at Pumpkin Springs, and this is the last whitewater day of rafting for our guests and for Glenn Goodrich and I, who have been on the river for... Glenn, how many days have you and I been on the river again now? About 20 days. So 20 days on the river, and uh, it's been... 23. 23 days, he says. Okay, well, that's nice. 23 days. Back-to-back, love them. Glenn's going up to Colorado to run some white water. I might have the people on the outside of the boat. Can you guys grab your paddles and go forward for me? So right now the paddle rafts are connected by carabiners in the middle, and the people on the outside are paddling together to uh, get us away from the Tapete Sandstone. It's jutting out over the river, and around us there's huge lavacados. Glenn, when we say lavacados out here, yeah. can you explain to us what a lavacado is that you're looking at right to your right? I've never heard the term before. <laughs> 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 what we have is this lava flow here is basalt, columnar basalt it's called, but I guess it looks avocado-ish. <laughs> you guys can rest if you'd like if you're paddling on the outside, I'd chill. We do have a wee bit of a swirly-whirly bit coming up here, but I'll try to guide us through that wealth, Glenn talks a little bit more about human history. The last time I spoke with you, we were floating through Conquistador's Isle, and you were talking about Flavel, your hero, George Flavel. So now I'd like for you to share with us a couple other river legends. I'd love to hear some more about your favorite legends out here in the Colorado River, which slices through Grand Canyon National Park. 
You know, I talked about Flavel, and one of the things I like about why I want to promote Flavel is because he never bragged about his trip, and hardly people hardly ever know, know him. There's another one that very unknown, sort of a hero, in the same way, and his name is Hum Woolley. Hum Woolley went down in 1903 with two other people, a guy named Sanger and one other person. Successful trip. Didn't run as many rapids as Flavel. But if I go around and ask people if they heard of Flavel, a fair amount of people have heard of him because he was number three. But number five was Hum Woolley. And I'll bet you a lot of our crew today would not even know who Hum Woolley was. But he did a successful trip in 1903. So that's one. Another uh, legend that I like is Buzz Holmstrom. Buzz Holmstrom went down in the 30s twice. He did one trip solo. He was the first one to ever do it solo. He went all the way down to Lake Mead, and, and Lake Mead was just starting to, wasn't full yet. And so he he got to run Lava Cliff. Lava Cliff is a rapid that is buried under the lake, as is Separation Canyon. Separation is buried under the lake. And those were considered, Lava Falls being the our largest rapid on the river, Lava Cliff was supposed to be even bigger, and Separation rivaled Lava Falls. So they were three of the biggest rapids on the river, and so very few people has ever have ever run that. And Buzz Holmstrom's really the only person ever to have run every rapid on the Grand Canyon because shortly after he ran those, they got buried under the lake. So Holmstrom's two trips, one was uh, solo, and his second one he ran everything, ran every rapid there was. So he was the first one to run Lava Falls since George Flavel. Uh, well, of course, John Wesley Powell. You have to respect him for being the first one down here and, and all that he did. And, you know, there was a lot of dissension on that trip, and he was part of that dissension. But just to have, have to lead a group that's starving and they're running out of food and rations and coming down here with nothing. Everybody since him had notes. Robert Stanton, the next one, had Powell's notes. And he's coming down here with total unknown having no idea what he's getting into. And to do that is, is definitely legendary. Yep. Uh, I can go down the list for many of them. Cole Brothers, or I liked Ellsworth because he liked to go big. Um, Emery and Ellsworth Cole were brothers. They did their trip in 1911 or 1910, completed in 1911. Ellsworth would always go bigger, and, and Emery would be conservative. And Not that conservative's bad. I'm conservative at times. They're legends as well good story that a lot of people don't know there's a rapid called Waltonburg here and very few people know that uh, Waltonburg rapid was originally called Christmas rapid and when uh, the Cole brothers went down there it was Christmas Eve and Ellsworth is a go for it I, I want to go big uh, let's, Emery was a conservative and they had a third person on the on the trip his name was last name was Luzon Waltonburg, we had those big hits actually. I had a swimmer there in, in Jay, ended up getting tossed out of my boat in Waltonburg. But Ellsworth said, I'm going big, I'm going down the left side. Emery's like, I'm going conservative, I'm going down the right side. There's more rocky over there, but it's less waves. And Luzon said, I'm walking. And so Luzon goes down, walks, goes below the rapid. So they're both kind of running close together. Ellsworth goes down the big ride. He capsizes. Emery goes down the right side where it's rocky. He ends up putting a hole in his boat. Luzon ends up swimming out after Ellsworth to help him out. So here it is, Christmas Eve. Think of these guys. That's where their legends is. 1910. December 24th, they're going down. Imagine the gear they had, you know, compared to what gear we have these days. So they're freezing. Emery's got a damaged boat, so they found the soonest camp, and then they decided to camp and do a layover day, which is staying at the camp for two nights, so they could celebrate Christmas as well as warm up, repair boats, and they ended up calling it Christmas Rapid, and it was called Christmas Rapid until 1923 when Emery came back as the head boatman for the Claude Bird's Eye Geological Survey Expedition of where they named all the rapids, and they ended up choosing Waltonburg for that one. But Emery and Ellsworth are definitely legends. Georgie, yeah, Georgie's amazing for pioneering the uh, for women for one and the motor rigs. Georgie ran in the 1950s. Found you know these old. It was after the war, so they had these old pontoon boats, war boats from World War II. And she ended up, she put a motor on it and figured out how to, and it, it had been motored before. Previously, she wasn't the first to motor, but she was definitely the one to pioneer driving motors with guests and had her Georgie's Royal River Rats Company. And uh, she was still running motors in her 80s. I actually saw her in 1980, my first trip, and she was at the put-in. Didn't really 
shake hands or even get to say anything, but I saw her. So I can say I saw that legend. So she was heading out on a trip that day that I was putting in on my first trip. Well, everybody's a legend. All these explorers are legends. Uh, Nathaniel Galloway, even though I say he takes, he gets a little bit of credit of things that Flavel did, but but he was amazing. He was the first one to do two trips. He did his his first trip with uh, one other person. Can't recall his second person's name, but they went down in 1896, completed in 1897. So they were just one, about six months behind Flavel. He did it again with Julius Stone in 1909. So there's a few. If you're just joining us, you are on the trail less traveled, and the voice you hear is the voice of Glenn Goodrich. Glenn has been rafting all over the world since 1977, and as of whatever the date is today, June 8th, June 8th 2018, Glenn Goodrich has run 445 rivers of the world, and after this trip, he's running uh, some rivers in Colorado. But Glenn, looking downstream as we float down and record this show, we got a little maneuver. Do you think we should stay connected for this, or do you think we should disconnect and come back together? I think we can do it. We can do it? Yeah. Okay, sweet ass. Do you want to talk while we do it, or we should just pause? Uh, well, we'll talk. Okay, sweet. I'll guide it. Okay. All right. I can help sweet. Okay. I, I would wonder if you could tell us the story of Glenn and Bessie Hyde. Yeah. So Glenn and Bessie Hyde, I was going to tell a story today, so here it is for my crew. Glenn Hyde was born just prior to the turn of the century, born from a wealthy family. Glenn's father had a prestigious job, was very wealthy, and he took on boating in Idaho. People in those times were doing prospecting. But in Idaho, on the middle fork of the salmon, they had a very interesting boat. It was called a sweep scow. And the sweep scow is very narrow, like our boats were in, but very long. We have a boat called the Chub that's 22 feet long, and it was probably very long, almost maybe that length or close to it. And so long and narrow, but the, the bizarre part, our gear boats have oars going out the side, and the sweep scow has the oars going end to end. Really, really long oars, 15, 16-foot oars that go out of both ends. So very bizarre. But they could do that on the middle fork of the salmon. It's a small river, and they could move sideways and side slip. And, and then uh, Glenn met Bessie. Bessie was kind of a wild child. You think of a woman's lib person in the 1920s. She was a partier, crazy, and Glenn just absolutely fell in love with her. But Glenn's parents did not fall in love with her. They didn't care for her at all. They decided to get married. And so they decided to that they would to their honeymoon on the Grand Canyon. Well, Glenn, just knowing the sweep scow so well, that the boat he had done on the Middle Fork, decides to build a sweep scow and decides to take it down the river. So they left in 1928 for a honeymoon trip. And uh, they got to Phantom Ranch they, to get some resupplies, and they talked to people up at the ranch, and they continued. But there was talk that, one, they were having a little friction in their marriage. It was a tough trip to do it together. And second, they were having trouble with that boat. That boat was not made for the Grand Canyon, and it was challenging. So they continued down. They ended up seeing Emery Kolb at Hermit Rapid. Emery was down there doing photographs, and so they, Emery was actually the last person to talk to them. And he said the same thing. He said there was friction between the couple. He said they were struggling, but they were continuing on. And anyway, they continued down the river. came time for them to be off the river. They never showed. So after a while, Glenn's father, very wealthy, hired an aircraft to go fly over the river to see if they could find anything. And then they saw a boat at mile 236. So uh, then he hires uh, Emery Kolb, and was assisted by some of the Bundys, and put in at 226, which is Diamond Creek. That's one of the access points we'll pass today. Went downstream to check out that boat, and sure enough, it was Glenn and Bessie's boat. A rope had caught, and that's why it was stuck in the eddy. Well, Glenn and Bessie were not wearing life jackets. They did not want to wear life jackets, so they knew that was a possible factor. They found Bessie's journal, and Bessie's journal last entry was at 217, so that was probably their last camp. The boat was found at 232. So anyway, kept searching and searching and were never found. That's it. Just never were found. Glenn's, you know, hired people for a long time. Glenn's father kind of never liked Bessie, so there was always a blame there. You know, could Bessie have killed Glenn? And, you know, they never really knew, but there was a lot of blame going on. But they were never found. Well, then you fast forward to 1973. A lady named Elizabeth Cutler 
was on a river trip. I actually know somebody was on a river trip. A guy named O.C. Dale told me the story. And they were sitting around. Back then, they could have fires in 1973 in a fire pan. So they were sitting around the fire at night. And it was late in the trip. And there was a single lady named Elizabeth Cutler. She was approximately 72 years old. This is like 1973, 72 years old. She was a single lady, no one with her, and just sitting around the fire. And all of a sudden, she says... I'm Bessie Hyde. And the guides go, yeah, right, sure, yeah, you're Bessie Hyde, okay. And she goes, no, I am, I am Bessie Hyde. I uh, was with my husband, Glenn, and we were doing a river trip here, and we capsized, and I was able to get to shore. Glenn, I saw him going downstream, but I assumed he drowned, so I didn't know what to do. I was stranded there, so I hiked out, and I thought Glenn's parents never never liked me. I was worried that I be, could be tried for they could put the blame on me but I just decided that I'm gonna live a new life change my name and just live a new life and and I'm here now because I wanted to come see the Grand Canyon one more time since since then and this is the first time I've ever revealed that I was Bessie Hyde and now the guides are going wow this is she was the right build she was the right age they're going holy cow this is crazy I mean what person would do a prank like that and so they started thinking maybe it was. And so the trip went on. It was just a few days left of the trip. She went her merry way. And the guides started passing it around that this lady was on the trip. And she said she was Bessie Hyde. And they went around. And a lot of people thought, well, she could have been. That she very well could have been. So never really knew at that point. Three years later, next bizarre thing. And Emery Kolb dies in 1976 at the age of 96. And... And when they went through his building there, the Kolb Studios, there was a skeleton there. And so everybody's wondering, why would there be a skeleton in his building? And one of the thoughts was, could he have, if Bessie had done something to Glenn, could he have helped him? Maybe the body was hidden somewhere, and, and then Emery ended up taking the remains to his studio. They didn't think Emery would have done something like that, but they also thought that Emery might have had some compassion for Bessie because he was the last one to talk to him, and maybe Bessie said something about domestic abuse from Glenn, and, and so they didn't know. Here's this skeleton in the building of Emery Kolb when he died. So there's another thing that happened. And then the next one was Georgie White. Georgie Clark, Georgie White. She went by two different names. But Georgie, basically she's just Georgie. But Georgie died, and they went through her office, her, her desk, and they found Glenn and Bessie's marriage certificate. And then they started thinking about Georgie, and Georgie was a very similar build to Bessie. Georgie was born around the, just after the turn of the century. So people started saying, could Georgie have been... Bessie Hyde and so there was that speculation so here it is you know 1928 was the honeymoon trip and decades later three things happened that are totally bizarre that could have been related to Glenn and Bessie Hyde's trip and so finally a guy named Brad Dimmick a friend of mine I've done a trip with him he's wrote a lot of books and wrote the book Sunk Without a Sound very good book about this the honeymoon couple and he ended up building a sweep scout and he and his wife at the time jerry ledbetter did a river trip and went down the river to reenact their honeymoon brad was planning to go all the way to the lake and so acted out all the way to where the boat was found but he said it was just so bizarre it was so difficult to maneuver that boat that he was afraid that after diamond creek there's uh, mile 232 has a, a rock in it. It's, we, it's a nickname, Killer Fang Falls. But, it's, but it's a, the water just piles into this rock. And Brad and Jerry just thought if we went into that, there was no way with the maneuverability of that boat that they could get away from that rock. So they called in a, to get taken out at Diamond Creek for that reason. So Brad continued to follow up for his book. He wanted to write about it. He did track down Elizabeth Cutler. Elizabeth Cutler, it was found that there was a real Elizabeth Cutler. But how bizarre! For some lady like that to come on a rafting trip and do a prank like that, but she did. They were able to prove that uh, the skeleton was not Glenn Hyde's, and then they were able to prove that Georgie was not Bessie Hyde. Uh, Brad followed up on all of that. So Brad's final speculation was that they didn't wear life jackets. They probably uh, 
went into 232 just as he suspected that uh, you know that boat would just hit the rock. And uh, the thing I probably didn't mention at the start, the boat did have a pretty good dent in it when they found it at mile 236. So that dent would probably have been from hitting, smashing that rock at 232, knocking both of them out. No life jackets, the swirly water, you're very likely to drown. And uh, they drowned, and bodies never found, because at that time there wasn't much civilization downstream on the Colorado River. That's his theory, is what happened, that they probably drowned there in mile 232. That's the Glenn and Bessie Hyde story. You're on the trail less traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. We are floating down the river in the studio with Glenn Goodrich. Glenn is literally sitting in his office. He has been guiding whitewater rafting since 1977. If you want to see pictures of Glenn that have been taken while he floated down and recorded this, you can check out traillesstravel.net. Now I'd love for you, Glenn, to help the listener to imagine themselves being here with us. We've got 12 guests here floating down the river, and you and I are in our paddle boats, uh, which are connected. Uh, we sit at Pumpkin Springs last night. We are floating through the remnants of ancient lava dams. But uh, can you do your best to just paint a picture for the listener as to where you are floating right now? It's actually kind of similar to Conquistadora because we're in a similar level of, of geology, and that's really what makes the canyon different at each level because there's a section here called Bright Angel Shale that is very erodible. So one thing we have here is what we call talus slopes. So, so we have these slopes from just above the river that go back very dirt slopes, but then right back to the Muav limestone. So, again, just the beauty of the canyon is it's just so so spectacular all the different layers but we have a big wide layer of the muav limestone here and so there's really cool uh, little peaks here where the muav is the top layer of this part we'll be passing one called diamond peak today which is really stands out i always float down this section thinking as we see these peaks and go is that diamond but when i first was running the river no is that diamond is that diamond but there's a lot of these muav peaks through here but spectacular colors and just every part of the canyon is different that's why you know i know mandela asks this question all the time when we're wherever we're sitting because it's always different and this is a very open part of the canyon and i love the steep walls but the open parts are really cool too you can see back a ways and looking around see this openness and and still see the spectacular walls up high Okay, I got another question for you, Glenn. We are going to go rafting in a moment. We're going to run your favorite rapid, Flavel Rapid, Rapid number 217, and you talked about that on our last segment. But I'd love for you to tell us about what happened at Separation Canyon because you talked a little bit about John Wesley Powell, but we definitely have the time to back it up and talk about John Wesley Powell and what happened at Separation, which is a section of river we're going to float by today. The white water is going to run out. We're going to kind of turn into Lake Mead, but it's still the Grand Canyon. I'm sure Glenn will talk to us about that. You know, remember to look up, but... Um, at Separation Canyon, Glenn has a story for what happened there. Another one of my stories for today. Great. Get everybody to hear this. Uh, Separation Canyon. Well, I kind of go back to Powell, the start of Powell's expedition. He started up in Green River, Wyoming, and they uh, got into a section called the Gates of Lador. And in that section was a big rapid that Powell pulled over saw this big rapid coming and then another boat had a three guys in it there's a guy named William Dunn and the Howland brothers and they were in this the, another boat and they did not see Powell kind of flagging them down and they went into the rapid and they anyway lost their boat and their boat had a lot of rations for the trip they had a lot of food they lost the boat so Powell and Dunn had to go in different boats and and from that point on very early in the trip, there was a lot of dissension between Powell and those three. Powell really felt like that was, he was trying to wave them down, and they didn't stop, and that, but they said, no, they didn't see him, it wasn't their fault, don't blame us, but that did cause a, a lot of problems for the trip because of the loss of the rations, so, so anyway, there was friction there for for a long time and as the trip went on as we got down into they got really past Kanab Creek even mile 144 they were really getting low on on rations and there was funny stories about there's lots of bighorn sheep and they had guns and there was one of the 
was a passenger's Dellenbaugh wrote in a book about his thoughts and he said how, what terrible shots most of them were because they couldn't kill you know here they're starving and they kept missing trying to get animals to get some food but anyway so they're starving they got dried bacon and coffee and not much else and they could get into the lower granite gorge where we're heading into today and they came to mile 240 and there was another huge rapid again separation and lava cliff were rivaled lava falls so they come to separation and they camped above it and William Dunn and, and the Howland brothers said we're done, we're hiking out we want no more part of this trip, we're out of food we're, we're just, we're done and Powell just really tried to talk him out and said this is not a wise decision we shouldn't be too far away you really shouldn't do that but they decided they're going to go so Powell finally the next morning just said okay, you've made your decision we don't want you to go but we're going to try and get through this rapid very smoothly and cleanly and if it works very clean, if you guys start off and we get through this rapid really quickly, I'll fire two shots in the air and you guys should come back. We'll wait for you a little bit. So you should come back. So a lot of times when they lined the boats, they would line the boats down the side. They'd have a boatman in the boat. They were lining it and the boat got loose and the boatman ended up kind of maneuvering through the, the sneak route, we call it, down the right side of the river went through it really cleanly and they were able to get their other two boats to just run it run away from the big stuff but run the sneak route down the side of the rapid and so because of that they were really quick pal did the two shots in the air they waited a while and they never showed up and the thing was that they ended up getting out of the canyon a day and a half later while william dunn and the howland brothers were never seen again and so there was speculation they might have been killed by Indians, by Mormons. They were all, you know, it's Indian territory, Mormon territory. Could have been killed by people. They could have died other ways. But they were never to be seen again. So, But then Powell got out of the canyon a day and a half later. All right, Glenn, it's time for a song. So we are approaching a rapid. I can see it's horizon line. So uh, we'll be wrapping up this segment. But is there a song that you uh, would like to share with us that reminds you and or inspires you of your life's adventures? This is a song that says it all. It's uh, simply Louis Armstrong, Wonderful World. That just says it all. This is a wonderful world we're in, wonderful world I've lived in. Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong is one of my favorite songs, and it, it, it really says it all. We are in a wonderful world here in our lives. Let's hear it for that. Paddle high five. Woo-hoo! Yeah. yeah. All right, we're back on the trail less traveled with Glenn Goodrich, and we are recording right now at the mouth of Travertine, Travertine Grotto, and it's a wonderful spot where we hike up and basically climb into a cave where there's a waterfall running through the Travertine. Glenn Goodrich has been rafting all over the world since 1977. We've been hearing about human history down here in Grand Canyon National Park because that's one of Glenn's passions, is human history, particularly Flavel, George Flavel. And if you missed that part, I suggest you check out the podcast and give it a listen. Glenn, now I'd like to talk to you about one of your other passions, and that is astronomy. Not astrology, but astronomy. And you give it a great star talk out here, and I've watched it about half a dozen times, and I love it still. You always start out by asking a question. What's that question? The question is, what is the brightest star? I always look for the wrong answer, where most people say... Polaris, which is the North Star, that is the most common answer, but it is only the 51st brightest star, and the answer, of course, is the sun, but that's the trick question part. My program is based on several, what we call planes, the plane that the solar system is on, all the planets go around on that plane, and the Earth is tilted 23 degrees, but if you drew a line straight from the equator, that's another plane called the equatorial plane. The three brightest stars in the sky are actually south in the south sky, south of the equator. Uh, the first one is called Sirius, which is the dog star. And it's, uh, it's you can see it from the northern hemisphere because it's not far below the equator. So we get to see it in the southern sky. The second and third are straight south. So we don't get to see it from the northern hemisphere. Canopus and Alpha Centauri, which is significant because it's the closest star to our solar system. It's actually four light years away, being our closest star, which gives you an idea of the massiveness of 
space because light travels at 285,000 miles per second, and it takes four years for our closest star for us to see its light. Sirius, the brightest star, takes eight years, and there are stars in our sky that are pretty bright that are as far as 200 light years. The light left a star called Deneb and Cygnus, the swan, the light is getting here now that would have left in in 1818 so anyway that's usually the first part of my program is the brightest and then the brightest star in our northern sky is called arcturus and easy for folks to find arcturus if people know the big dipper you just follow the handle from the big dipper in a curve uh, going from the bucket part away from the bucket and you draw a line and it'll go right to arcturus so if you want to impress your friends they want to know what a bright star is in the sky if you see it so you can curve from the handle it is Arcturus. But anyway, the, as Mandela mentioned, the astronomy is one of my passions. And I also often get asked, why astronomy? And one answer is that I always loved the stars as a kid. And I even took astronomy in college, but it was so much math and technical stuff that it just went over my head and, and didn't enjoy that part of it. I'm interested in the constellations and what the planets do and things like that. I went to a program that's actually... McDonald Observatory in Texas and they did this fantastic star program in the daylight showing where all the planets how they move across the sky and and I saw that and I said I got to take this to the river and and it just that was so impressive because uh, there were so many things I didn't understand and that's the clearest picture ever drawn to me about about the stars and and I just loved it so the other reason I do astronomy is I work so many different places all over the world, and if I work in Montana or Arizona or West Virginia or some of my main places, Colorado, each place, the fauna is different, the flora is different, the geology is different, and and it's a lot to learn, And and I love learning it and learning as much as I can at each place I go, but... The sky is the same. I can do this star talk in Montana. I can do this star talk in Arizona. I can do it anywhere. It's exactly the same. And I can look at the sky and I can point out with a laser pointer the sky and whether I'm in any of those states. So that is a a big reason why that's become my favorite thing to talk about because I can know it so well and don't have to learn each little region. I can talk about it from wherever I'm at. All right, so anyway, that's why I start out the talk with the brightest stars and I ask why would Polaris or the North Star be the number one answer? And the reason is, is because it's so well known. So people think it's a bright star, but and it's fairly bright. But, but as I say, only the 51st brightest star. It's so important because it's directly north. And navigators and for centuries have used it to navigate ships. And, and even on land, you can follow the North Star and, and get a direction of where you're going. The other thing that's nice to show, and I can show it when the sky gets dark after I do this daytime program, if you find the North Star in the sky and you go to bed at 9 o'clock in and, and the dark and you can get up in the middle of the night or just wake up in the middle of the night, look at the sky, and Polaris will be in the exact same spot because all the stars circle around it, and they're not circling, we are. We're spinning but in our visual, it looks like the stars are moving across the sky. They're not. We're moving. But the Polaris is the one that never moves because it, all the stars will go in a circle around Polaris. And then stars further away kind of do an arc across the sky. But everything moves except Polaris. So that's why that's such an important star. But that's kind of part one of my talk. Uh, part two is about the planets. And I always ask how many planets there are. And since 2006, that's been... A debate whether Pluto is a planet or not. So some people say eight, some people say nine, and I always say that there's scientists agree now that there's eight planets, except if you're from Flagstaff, Arizona, because they discovered Pluto at Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, so they're refusing to give it up. There's actually eight planets, but I explain how Pluto became a dwarf planet because it's different than the others. It has a different path around the sun, so it. it Uh, It's an elliptical orbit instead of a circular orbit. That's one reason. When I ask people that question, many people say because Pluto is smaller. But there's another dwarf planet that was discovered that's actually bigger than Mercury, so you can't really go by that. It's more that they have a a different orbit where their path goes. 
And so all these new ones that they've been discovering, they're calling dwarf planets, and that's where Pluto fits in for that. But then I go through the uh, planets, and, and the first, what I talk about is the ones that we can see visually with, the, with our eye, eye, naked eye in the nighttime, six of them including, including us, uh, be Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and then within Earth, between Earth and the Sun is, is Venus and Mercury. So I just go through how all these planets will move through the sky and anything that's any object in the sky, when we're looking at the sky, when you see a planet like Jupiter, it will be in a constellation. And so we're looking at a planet, but beyond that is a constellation. All of the planets go through 12 constellations called the Zodiac. An interesting question I always enjoy asking and, and explaining is, for instance, I'm Libra and I'm in late September, so we'll call Libra's actually October, mostly October. But why would Libra be October? And many people answer, well, probably Libra's high in the sky in October, and that's actually the totally wrong answer. There were scientists 2,000 years ago that were very smart and, and knew that the world wasn't flat and could see this planetary motion. And what they figured out was, in other words, in October, the sun is in Libra. And what that means, if we don't see Libra because the sun's in the way. So if you were to make the sun the brightness of a planet, you would see that planet or the sun in Libra. And so when you're a constellation, when it's your birthday, the sun is, is actually, if it was blotted out, is in, that, in your constellation. So you can never see it during your birthday because it's, uh, the sun is in the way. And, and that's how these astronomers 2,000 years ago figured this whole thing out. I thought that was an interesting fact. And then I go through how the Saturn moves. Saturn takes uh, 29 years to go around the sun, but if you round it off for purposes of seeing how they go through the zodiac, through, through these constellations, there's 12 zodiac constellations, and Saturn will move through each one of them once every two years. So I can track Saturn, and all the zodiac are, are the constellations are in the same order that we have astrologically. Saturn is in uh, Sagittarius right now, but in two years it will be in Capricornus. And I can track that. Anybody could track that because you know the speed of how long Saturn takes to go around the sun and therefore how fast Saturn moves through those constellations. And Jupiter goes takes one year to go around the sun. Very easy. It moves through one of those constellations once a year. And so on. Mars takes two months. And then I would like to show how why Venus is called the evening star in the morning star and it's because the Venus will be we'll see it just above the horizon we can never see it high in the sky because it's between us and the Sun so Venus moves it'll move to where it's in between us and the Sun so we don't see it and then as it moves further it'll become a, we'll see it in the morning sky and then it'll continue moving around the Sun and it'll be behind the Sun and then it's gone and then it comes back again to be uh, right after sunset in the evening sky. So, so that's how Venus works and, and uh, it's a morning and evening star. If you're just joining us, you are on the trail less traveled and it's being recorded today outside of Travertine Grotto, the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and we're sitting here with Glenn Goodrich. Glenn and I are both guiding this trip. We're on our second back-to-back. And uh, before we finish, Glenn, could you please tell us about seasons? I love it how you hold a sleeping bag up as the earth and put your head towards the middle of the circle at camp on the river. Oh, yeah, then I also show seasons. So the Earth is tilted 23 degrees, and it's, it's a kind of a visual thing, but, but I use a sleeping bag, and I tilt the sleeping bag towards the sun, you know, like 23 degrees tilted. And so when we're in June right now, and it's, uh, we're really close to that summer solstice, so the Earth is now tilted towards the sun. Uh, on the northern side is towards the sun, so the north side gets the direct rays, and the south, southern hemisphere gets the indirect rays. But if you kept that earth, and as I use a sleeping bag, and I walk around the sun, I keep the same tilt, but I don't rotate towards the sun. And then when you get to fall, the, the uh, earth is tilted, but it's tilted from the sun, it's tilted equally. So you have equal rays on the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. And you keep that same tilt as I walk around the, the other side of the sun, and on the back side, and now we're in, uh, uh, in Sagittarius or Capricornus uh, in, in 
December, the direct rays are on the southern hemisphere, and that's why we have winters. So that's why we have the seasons. So anyway, a little bit about that. Then I talk about the moon a little bit and why that the full moon is actually the Earth is between the sun and the moon. So the moon is behind the Earth, so it gets the full rays of the reflecting the full the whole moon from the sun. And then a new moon is when the the moon is between the Earth and the sun. So I show that. This is all demonstration on sand. So hopefully there's enough visual on this program to understand what I'm talking about. But another thing I throw in, just for fun, is some mythological uh, stories. I also talk, I talked about planes, talked about the two planes, the ecliptic, which is the solar system, the equatorial plane, drawing a line straight out from the equator. Our galaxy is known as the Milky Way. It's a spiral galaxy, and we are totally tilted, very sideways, in the Milky Way. And that's why we see the Milky Way, if you're ever in a dark sky area, you don't see it in cities. But in a dark sky area, that band of almost like a cloud goes across the sky. That's our Milky Way. And we get to see it on, the, on down here in the Grand Canyon because there's such a great, there's no light pollution and incredible skies here in the, in, the, in the dark. And we are in the Milky Way. There's a spiral galaxy. We're not all the way out on the, the tip of it. But just like I said, you could see a planet in a constellation. The Milky Way will be seen in a constellation because it's way beyond it, but we'll see it in our visual in that constellation. So if anybody's a Sagittarius, you can say you're the center of the galaxy because that's where we see in our visual. We're looking at Sagittarius. You see the cloud go, that Milky Way cloud go right through Sagittarius, and we're looking at the center of our galaxy. But I throw in some mythological stories, and one is about why the Milky Way got called the Milky Way. So Zeus is the god of gods, is married to Hera, but Zeus liked to mess around with mortals, and so Zeus ended up with a mortal named Archimedes, and they ended up having a kid together, and that child was named Hercules. Well, the gods knew that Hercules was just going to be the greatest thing ever, the strongest, just super strong, but they were really saddened because Hercules was born from a mortal. They wanted Hercules to be immortal, so the only way that Hercules could be immortal is for Hercules to suckle from the bosom of Hera, who was Zeus's wife. Well, Hera wasn't going to let that happen, so what they did was get Hermes, the messenger god, also known as Mercury. They snuck Hercules in, who ended up drinking a little milk from Hera, so he became immortal, which is what their goal was. But Hera just got startled real quick and ended up splattering milk across the sky, and therefore that's how the Milky Way became the Milky Way. Awesome, Glenn. We are heading back to the boats now, and that's the end of our program. I just wanted to thank you so much for for recording with me here on location in the Grand Canyon. Thank you for your time and energy joining me on the trail less traveled. Thank you, Mandel. It's great. Can we end your show with three bits of advice that you'd give to the listeners? Three bits of advice. Have fun. Probably the biggest advice to anybody is when you choose a profession, choose something you love to do. It isn't about the money. It's about doing what you love. And stay active would be my third one. I'm slowing down at age 63, but I'm going to keep active as long as I can. And just the more you can stay active, the younger you'll feel and the younger you'll, you'll stay, you'll be. Awesome, Glenn. I look forward to hopefully meeting up with you in Africa to run the Orange River Gorge. But now it's time for a song. What song would you like to end your show with? one I can think of right now is a song by Chicago and it's called Make Me Smile because this place makes me smile. You make me smile Mandela and my job being a river guide here and making people smile is what it's all about. So Make Me Smile by Chicago. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, make sure you check out the official website, traillesstraveled.net, where you can archive previous shows and subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is also available wherever you gather podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, the legend himself, Mr. Glenn Goodrich. Glenn is known internationally as the Gali Lama, and he has been guiding on rivers all over the world since 1977. As of early June 2018, Glenn has run over 450 rivers of this world. His personal goal is to hit 500. 
My name's Mandela, and my goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can get out there and start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series that airs every Sunday night at 6. My adventure tip this week is to remember to always shake out your shoes, your PFD, or any clothing or sleeping bag that you may have laid out before you decide to get involved with it again, just in case a little scorpion or snake has decided to snuggle up with it. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Thank you for listening. And until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside. Shred the gnar, because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. <laughs>